very good morning to you all and a very warm welcome to our weekly Sunday service. Amazingly, this is the third week straight that we've done this service online. And I'm still finding it really strange. I'm sure you are too. But I really feel the Lord has actually drawn us closer together as a church family during this time. Things like Zoom, uh, WhatsApp groups, Instagram, the Lord has used them all to draw us closer together despite the physical distance. Whether or not you've been a church member for many years or are just tuning in as a one-off, we want to say that you're so, so welcome today. And we really hope this service is a blessing to you and that you encounter the Lord's love and goodness uh, during this time. Our service is going to be pretty straightforward. We're going to have a time of praise. We're going to pray together. And Jim Crooks is going to open God's word to us as we continue looking at the gospel of John. I'm just going to pray as we start off here and commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, at such a time as this, we're so thankful we can turn to you in prayer. You are the God whose throne is established in heaven, whose kingdom rules over all. Lord, you don't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love, Lord, for those who fear you. Father, we thank you that you care for us, your children. We thank you, Lord, that you're not detached from our difficulties during this time. Father, your Son, the Lord Jesus, knows what it is to feel isolated and alone in the darkness. Lord, you know what it's like to see your precious loved ones suffer. Thank you that you know, that you understand. We give thanks, Lord, that you stand with us in this trial. You hold us fast with your right hand. And Lord, you've given us a hope, a hope that even death itself cannot shatter, the hope that one day when we've passed through this veil of tears, there will be no more death or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Lord, we long for that day, and we long to see the Lord Jesus on that day. Father, we want to specifically bring before you those who are experiencing real hardship and difficulty at this time. We pray for those in our church family who are sick and suffering, and we think particularly, Father, of the Ramsey family. We lift them up to you. We ask, Lord, that you might place your hand of healing upon Carl and bring him through this trial. Restore him to full health, we ask it, and to his dear wife, Esther. Please be very close to Esther. Give her a sense of your presence and loving comfort. May she and the whole Ramsey family, cause father and brothers too, know that peace which only you can give, O Lord. We pray also, Father, for our leaders, our NHS workers, and all who are working so hard to battle this virus. Please grant them protection, wisdom, resilience, and strength. Please, Lord, bring our nation through this time. Please bring healing. But finally, Lord, we pray that this crisis in our nation may result in people turning back to you. We're a land, Lord, that has scorned you for far too long. We've treated the unborn with contempt. We've called good the things that you call evil. So please bring repentance to our land, O Lord. May the gospel transform hearts and lives. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. David Farrell will now bring us an update on behalf of the church pastoral care team. Good morning. My name is David Farrell. 
and I am a member and an elder here in the Crescent Church. We are truly living in very difficult times. And I am reminded of an occasion when, as a young man, while at university in Japan, I would spend my summer holidays diving and snorkeling off the islands in Tokyo Bay. On one occasion, I got caught in very treacherous water. I was being sucked under rocks and I couldn't escape. With my last breath and my last ounce of strength, I managed to grasp hold of a rock and pull myself to safety. That rock saved my life. Many of us feel exactly the same today. We feel that we are in dangerous waters that we have never been in before. We find ourselves in very dangerous and difficult circumstances. We find ourselves lonely. We find ourselves weeping. We find ourselves fearful. We are concerned about the future. We don't know where to turn. In many ways, what we are experiencing today is similar to what the psalmist was experiencing in the Old Testament. In Psalm 61, David wrote these words, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock which is higher than I. When David is referring to his heart being overwhelmed, he is using words which are extremely strong. He is saying that he no longer can cope. You may find yourself in that situation right now. You may find yourself in a situation which you feel you can no longer cope. You can no longer cope alone. You have a God to whom you can turn. You have a faith. You have a Bible that you read and you can pray. But you are struggling. You really are reaching out for help. We in the Crescent Church and as members of the pastoral care team and as elders want to help you in any way we can. We want to reach out to you and we want to help you through this period of crisis. We will contact you, but we also would ask that you contact us. Reach out to us. Tell us how you are. Feel free to call us and to call one another to support each other as we face this crisis together. It is important that we know exactly how you are so that we can meaningfully pray for you. So please keep in touch. As elders, we are responsible for you as a flock. We are your shepherds, to use a word in the Bible. We are among the sheep. We care for you. We want to care for you. We want you to reach out to us so we can help you. So please feel free to email us here at the Crescent Church. And as members, you will have access to each of our individual telephone numbers and email addresses. Please feel free to use these. Feel free to contact us and we will pray with you, read the word of God with you and try to walk with you to the best of our ability in this period of crisis. Please remember, when the psalmist David was struggling, when his soul was completely overwhelmed, he could reach out to a rock, the rock which we have, our faith in God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is higher than I. Thank you. I'm sure many of your children have been missing the regular kids song. So this week, Rachel Glass has very kindly recorded the actions for us of our song, Be Strong. So gather your kids round the screen and let's sing together the words of Be Strong.
Before we sing our next song, I just want to share a couple of verses with you. And these verses have been a great blessing to me over the years. They're from Psalm 139, and I'm just going to read them now. Verse 11 says, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I absolutely love these words, and I'm actually most struck by them when I'm sitting on a plane. And you see the sun just setting on the horizon and the sky fades to black. And as you're sitting there on the plane, looking out of the window at that dark, inky sky, I just remember these words and think that, that no matter how dark the world is, no matter how gloomy things are, no matter how small I seem on that plane in the middle of this vast sky, actually to the Lord, even the darkness isn't dark. To the Lord, the night shines as the day, for darkness is as light to him. And I just think it's such a comfort to know that God sees clearly, even when we don't. Nothing takes God by surprise. So on the plane, I'd sit back in peace, knowing that he holds me, even in the darkness. Let's join together and sing the hymn beneath the cross of Jesus. And then Jim Crooks will minister to us from God's word. Mercy that calls 
Good morning, everyone. It seems downright weird uh, to be preaching from a room in my own house, but we are living in strange and difficult times. May the Lord continue to watch over you and your loved ones. Our studies in the Gospel of John have brought us to ground which every Christian believer regards as holy. Today we consider the crucifixion, the death and the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would love you to get your Bibles out and follow the text in front of you as Ollie reads John chapter 19, verses 16 to 42. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Thanks, Ollie. This passage of scripture is going to give us clear-sightedness in a dark world. It'll give us confidence in a confused world. 
and it will give us courage in a fearful world. Perhaps the best place to start is to compare John's account of the crucifixion with the accounts we read in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And the first thing we notice is that John has left lots of material out. There's no mention of Simon of Cyrene. Uh, The three hours of darkness aren't mentioned. Descriptions of earthquakes or other supernatural signs are omitted. We don't hear the two criminals on either side of Jesus speak. And the sneers of the religious elite are not recorded. John chooses to focus on the straightforward actions of the Roman execution squad. He tells us how they sat at the foot of the cross and gambled for the Lord's clothes. Someone lifts a sponge soaked in sour wine to Christ's parched lips. They decide not to break the Lord's legs with an iron mallet because he is already dead. Instead, one of them pierces his side by plunging a spear into it. Now, the picture painted by John is grim, but in comparison to the other Gospel writers, his account makes Jesus' crucifixion seem not very different from any other crucifixion. So what is the Apostle teaching us here? Well, perhaps the clue is found in the word writing. In verses 19 through 21, we encounter a debate between Pilate and the religious rulers over the inscription Pilate had ordered to be placed on Jesus' cross. That debate ends with those famous words, What I have written, I have written. Now, you'll struggle to find the word writing elsewhere in this passage, but that's because our English translations use the word scripture instead. But in the original language, the word we see as scripture is simply the word writing. John seems fascinated by the link between the actions of the Roman execution squad and the writings of the Old Testament. In fact, that is clearly his focus of attention. He cites four different writings. If you have the text in front of you, just look at them now. In verse 24, he quotes that bit from Psalm 22 about men who gambled for an innocent victim's clothing. Then in verse 28, John points us to Psalm 69 about men who gave sour wine to a parched and dying man. In verse 36, John cites the book of Exodus, which instructed the people not to break the bones of the Passover lamb. And in verse 37, he quotes from the prophecy of Zechariah about how men will look upon the one they have pierced. Now, glance for a moment at this graphic on the screen. We can see that our text for this morning is symmetrical. At its very centre, there is the moment when Jesus dies. And we can see that the four writings we just examined are arranged on either side of that central moment. Two writings are discussed immediately before the Lord dies, and two immediately afterwards. At the outer levels of the structure, we start off with a conversation between Pilate and the religious elite about the inscription over the Lord's head. And at the end, we encounter another request made to Pilate, this time by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And that gives us a total of four sections. I'm going to make one point from each section, giving us a total of four in this study. Now, thank you for sticking with me through that structural stuff. We can now take a step back and ask ourselves what John is trying to teach us here. Why do these quotations from the Old Testament matter? Well, at the end of the previous chapter, John records a conversation between Pilate and the Lord Jesus about truth. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, says Jesus. Then comes that mocking, cynical reply from Pilate, probably flung over his shoulder as he walked out of the room. What is truth? In this study, I'm going to suggest that John is answering Pilate's question. And his first point is that truth isn't just personal opinion. 
Think now of the moment when the chief priests crowded around Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate's inscription was claiming that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Today, we might call that an objective truth claim. But the chief priests wanted to reduce that statement to a mere opinion. This man believed himself to be the king of the Jews. Now, that's a very modern idea. We live in a culture which has reduced truth to a strong inner conviction. If I really feel something, if I am utterly convinced of it in my inner self, then it is true. It may not be true for you, but it's true for me. The journey taken by the chief priests, it's almost unbelievable. Remember, they were guardians of a faith that had taught the nations about the one true God. They had the unique privilege of holding out the hope of a Messiah who would transform the human condition. But rather than accept the evidence in front of them, they jettisoned all their beliefs in what was ultimately true and real. We have no king but Caesar, they said. And with that one sentence, they were surrendering what their forefathers had fought to maintain for centuries. Rather than acknowledge Christ, they spat in the face of their cultural heritage. In so doing, their most basic beliefs about the world cracked like a broken mirror. There is no objective truth anymore, just strong inner convictions. He really did believe that he was king of the Jews, poor man. Now, with magnificent irony, John uses the words of Pilate to describe what truth really is. What I have written, I have written. So let's consider again what John is doing in this account of the Lord's crucifixion. On the surface level, we see four Roman squaddies go about their day's work. They divide up the Lord's belt and sandals and jacket between them. By the outer cloak was a beautifully woven thing, perhaps woven as an act of devotion by some of the women at the scene. So they make the apparently arbitrary decision to gamble for it rather than tear it into pieces. We hear the rattle of dice in a Roman helmet and we ask ourselves, is this how history unfolds? Is it nothing but chance and prosaic human decisions? No, says John. There is something deeper running underneath the froth of human activity and apparent randomness. The truth is the understanding that beneath the current of surface events, God is telling out his great story. It's a story about love and justice and hope. Those whose eyes have been opened can see the truth. I wonder when the pennies began to drop. Maybe it was when one soldier punched the air in delight at having won the robe as his prize while the others cursed their ill luck. And suddenly, like an arrow, the words of Psalm 22 flew into the heart. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Like the tumbler pins in a lock, all falling into place just before the key turns. There comes the realisation that this entire scene had been written down, yet written down, centuries beforehand. Every tiny little detail, the effects of crucifixion, the very words used by the sneering religious elite, everything had been written down. Then John takes our mind to another psalm, Psalm 69 this time. The Lord is parched with thirst. And so someone takes a hyssop stalk, puts a sponge on it filled with sour wine, and holds it to his lips. In Psalm 69, the author says that he is parched with thirst. But then he says, 
for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And once again we hear the tumbler pins in the lock fall into place. If Psalm 22 was a writing about the Lord's death, Psalm 69 is a writing about the Lord's life. You can see it all there. His rejection in Nazareth, the dislike felt for him by his own brothers, the continual feeling of being an unloved outcast. It's all there, written down centuries before his birth. Like every human being who has ever lived, our Lord longed for the refreshing draught of being loved and accepted. He longed to drink from the fountain of friendship, to be known and loved. But all we ever gave him was sour wine. John's point is that history does not unfold based on the role of dice in a Roman helmet. It's not moved because of human will is all-powerful. In ages past, God said, What I have written, I have written. With divine foreknowledge, God saw what every character at the cross would do. He knew exactly how they would behave, and he orchestrated their actions into his grand story. This is truth. What is truth? Pilate asked. Truth is the Bible's explanation of the human condition. Truth is the gospel story of redemption and future glory. Truth is the explanation of why things are and how they will end up. There's tremendous comfort in that thought. How will your time on this earth end? Is it determined by a chance event? Someone coughs, a tiny little water droplet lands on a metal handrail. You happen to touch the rail and then rub your nose and COVID-19 starts to destroy your lungs. You find yourself gasping for air. Is that how life works? Let the Apostle John tell you the truth. The universe is not governed by chance. The deeper story is that God has written your life story down. He has numbered the heads, the hairs on your head. And to use one of the Lord Jesus' famous sayings, it stands written. That is the truth that a fearful world needs to hear. The atheist believes that his life could be snuffed out by some entirely random event. That must be a terrifying thought, but it is not true. Underneath the surface events of life, there are the everlasting arms. Before we leave this second section, let's just reflect for a moment on verses 25 through 27. The Apostle John is very interested in his gospel, in the theme of relationships and how death can rupture them. So I wonder if there is some significance in the fact that the fabric of his robe remained intact, not torn apart. Mary Magdalene would discover in the next chapter that her relationship with Christ could not be severed through death. And the Lord introduces a new relationship between his own mother and the Apostle John. There may have been no family links between Mary and John, or a very distant one of that. But those who stand at the foot of the cross are joined into the same spiritual family. And we should take our family responsibilities seriously, bearing with one another, carrying one another's burdens. And it was this responsibility that changed John more than anything else. His biological mother seems to have been a commanding and competitive woman. But the Lord's mother was more like a wounded bird. A sword had pierced her soul. How different this despairing woman was from that eager young Jewish girl who sang out, My soul will magnify the Lord, when she heard she was pregnant 
with the Lord's anointed. And caring for her, an angry young man was transformed into the beloved elder, the man who could talk of abiding in love. He had learned to love and to be loved. This tender moment between Jesus and his mother is particularly poignant in our own culture. Our Lord could not care any longer for his mother's physical needs, so he had to commend her into the care of others. In a society that must contend with diseases like Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, there can come a time when we cannot care for our parents ourselves. It can be a terribly emotional moment when we have to commend them into the care of others. And you should know that the Lord Jesus knows how that moment feels. In verse 30, we reach the central point in the passage. The Lord Jesus dies. And the soldiers are about to break his legs with an iron mallet to accelerate the dying process, but they discover that he is already dead. To make sure, one of them plunges his spear into Jesus' side. The damage already caused to the Lord's chest cavity by his beatings had caused hemorrhagic fluid to build up. And so when the cavity was opened up by the spear, blood and clear serum flowed out of his side. If we could summon up the courage to look at Christ in those moments, his bruised dead body, his savagely beaten face covered in blood and spittle, we might understandably ask how this terrible thing could be the access point by which we come to a knowledge of the truth about reality. The scene evokes our pity, of course, but how could it have any cosmic significance? Even if the plot was all written down beforehand, it seems to make no sense. Well, to explain what was going on at the deepest level, John takes two more writings from the Old Testament. The first was from the earliest days of Israel history, from the Exodus story. Just like the Passover lamb, not a single bone of Christ's body was to be broken. And the second one describes a scene at the very end of time, when the nation of Israel will at last recognize Christ as its Messiah. They will weep as they recall that their actions led to their own Messiah being pierced. In his first writing, John shows us Christ as the Passover lamb. In the second writing, which he takes from the prophecy by Zechariah, John is showing us Christ as the shepherd who was struck down so that the sheep could be saved. Now that's a very interesting piece of book ending, because John starts off his gospel with John the Baptist declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he ends the third journey with the picture of the Lord Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So the Apostle is telescoping his entire gospel into these two ancient writings. Remember, John has laboured hard to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is God incarnate, the Word made flesh. But surely that makes the scene we are witnessing even more incomprehensible. What sort of a God would allow his creatures to treat him like this? Well, says John, he did it to protect you. On that fateful Passover night, God stretched himself out over the Israelite homes like a mother bird covering her chicks with outstretched wings. And in Zechariah's prophecy, the shepherd is struck so that the sheep are spared. When we gain the eyesight to see it, the cross of Christ becomes the hinge of history because there the Son of God gave himself for you and me. He took responsibility for all the hurt and pain and misery we have caused to other people. He bore the just punishment for that sin on our behalf. And he did it out of love. Personal, heartfelt love. So stand once again at the foot of the cross 
and see the scene in the light of these deep realities. Suddenly, we see the sheer magnificence, the moral grandeur of the Christian gospel. We all know that the root problem with humanity is a moral one. Marx's attempt at a deeper story ended in disaster. Humanism's dreams of a utopia achieved through education are just simply naive. Any serious attempt to explain the human condition must address that destructive, rebellious thing inside each of us that causes us to ruin our lives and the lives of others. It's at the cross of Christ that we see those profound problems of idolatry and alienation and death being dealt with, tackled by a God who's prepared to suffer and die in our place so that love and justice might be reconciled. The Lord Jesus once described himself as the way, the truth and the life. And here we find a uniquely Christian idea. Truth is not an equation that explains how physical reality works. Truth is not an abstract economic theory. Truth is a person. And by that I mean that in Jesus Christ we encounter that which is ultimately real. So we consider again the scene we have been reading about. See Christ's nobility, his commitment to justice, his unswerving loyalty to the very creatures who were taunting and killing him. See his humility and his gentleness and his truthfulness. And then glance at the sneering faces at those around the cross, some twisted with jealousy and cruelty, others full of cynical brutality. Look at Christ and know what is real. Suddenly all the idols we have made, the edifices of lies we have built in an attempt to invent meaning, Suddenly we see them as shabby and false. Our idols are nothing more than the projections of pride and avarice and the lusts and fears that lurk within the human heart. It's at the foot of the cross we discover the truth that it's about what is real and beautiful and valuable, in contrast to what is false and ugly and worthless. No one put it better than the hymn writer. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. If you glance at this slide for a moment, you'll see that our study is almost over. Truth is not an inner conviction. It's not a personal opinion. Truth is God's deep story that was written down long ago by the one who knows the end from the beginning. And it is at the cross of Christ that we encounter the truth when we see all that is ultimately real and valuable. Verses 38 through 42 tell the story of Jesus' burial. The two men we encounter in this passage were both highly respectable. Take Nicodemus. He was Israel's teacher, a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus had been very sympathetic to Christ within the limits of his value system. By that phrase I mean that Nicodemus had a view of what was really valuable in life. Even if he found it difficult to admit it to himself, Nicodemus loved the praise of men. He loved to be admired. And for him, being admired was an important and valuable thing in life. It was one of the big motivators in his life. So when he came to visit Jesus by night in John 3, he did so because he was scared to lose the admiration of his colleagues in the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea was a similar sort of man. Wealthy, he had clearly put a lot of effort into getting a nice tomb ready for his own burial. Cost a lot of money, that grave. Situated where it was in a lovely garden, hewn out of hard rock. But posterity matters. The important thing was to be well remembered after you'd gone to the grave. But the truth about life, revealed by the cross, transformed both those men. It set them free. I think they stood around the cross and watched that pitiless scene. 
They saw their erstwhile colleagues behave with unspeakable cruelty. And they wondered to themselves, why do I even care about these people? Why do I care about my place in society or my posterity? As they stood at the foot of the cross, the truth set them free from all their little idolatries. And so, to the disgust and shock of the Sanhedrin, the two men take Jesus' body down from the cross and wash it. They treat it with respect and dignity. Nicodemus gave up his love of being admired. Joseph gave up his own ideas about posterity. Somehow those things didn't seem to matter to people who had been set free by the truth. May God bless his word to our hearts. Ollie's going to close in prayer and then we'll stand together at the foot of the cross and sing When I Survey. We may be geographically apart, but as we sing, we will be standing on the same holy ground. And in that moment, we will be together. Heavenly Father, thank you that it is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we encounter all that is real and valuable in this life. Thank you that the truth of Christ crucified transforms us and liberates us from our idols. It frees us to live lives poured out for you, O God. In the words of our final hymn, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. When I
my